appreciate y'all being here. I know this isn't really ideal. You know, we're Sunday school supposed to be in a more intimate relationship and uh, setting. But um, we'll have a good time and we're going to be looking at a, a book that Gentry wants us to go through the next six weeks entitled Conscience. If you, you can order it online or get a bookstore, but I think the church is only providing uh, books for the teachers. So if you want a book, you have to teach, okay? Also, um, you don't have to wear a mask if you teach, so there are some benefits. But let me just um, open this in prayer and we'll go from there. Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this beautiful weather. Just thank you for all that you give us this, this Lord's Day. Just thank you for bringing us to this point. Help us to focus in this next hour on the conscience. Help us to learn what you would have us to learn and to share with each other what you'd have us to share. Just help this next six-week study be something that will benefit us greatly and that will come out changed and better people for it. Thank you for Gentry and his leadership and for Mitch and his leadership. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So like I said, we'll be studying this book. It's entitled Conscience. It's written by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. I'm going to just kind of read an introduction and preface, and then we'll look at the first chapter. And then I think um, next week Matt Porter's doing chapter two, and then there's six chapters. So it'll be six weeks, and then we'll just go from there. And again, it's about conscience. It says, Some subjects in Christianity are so promising and useful on so many different levels Studying them gives us a, a, a harvest beyond our expectations. And I think if we devote ourselves to focusing on conscience, conscience for the next several weeks, um, that we will be blessed. Um, conscience is one of these subjects that we often overlook, um, but the next six weeks we'll try to focus on it. And we'll specifically look at salvation, sanctification, church unity, evangelism, missions, and apologetics. So it really covers a wide range of topics. But most likely, conscience has been neglected in the church as a whole. Uh, After all, when's the last time you heard a a sermon on the conscience? Has anyone ever heard a sermon on the conscience? Gentry, not even you. Well, y'all really need this. I mean, y'all are just desperate for this. Um... But this book, as we go through, is to help us know about our conscience better. It's to help put conscience on our daily radar. It's just to bring it to the forefront of our minds while we're thinking about it. Many of us have neglected our conscience, and this neglect can be very serious. So what is conscience? Where did it come from? How does it work? Does it always judge correctly? Can it change? How does it change? How do we take care of our conscience? In this study, we'll look at these questions Try to find a deeper understanding and appreciation of this gift because it is a gift from God, just like his many other gifts. The goals of this study, the three main goals as we get started, number one, as we said previously, to put conscience back on our daily radar just so we're thinking about it. Secondly, is to show us from Scripture what God intended and did not intend for the conscience to do for us. And number three to explain how our conscience works, how to care for it, and how not to damage it. Also, we'll learn that um, an awareness of conscience increases church unity 
and strengthens our evangelism and missions. And how many churches don't want their unity and evangelism and missions to be strengthened? That's vital for all churches. We'll also discuss how to get along with each other because we all have different consciences. Um, and we have different opinions and different standards. And that's okay. That's okay to be different. But we need to make sure that our conscience lines up with God's standard and God's will. Specifically, there are five ways that we can benefit greatly from this study. Number one, we'll benefit if we want to know how our conscience relates to our spiritual maturity. So as you focus on conscience, it should help grow your spiritual maturity. Number two, it will benefit us if we want to know how to get along with people who have different standards, different consciences. And number three, it will benefit us if we want to help people in our church understand why churches have clashes because of our differences of opinion and our different consciences. Number four, we'll benefit greatly if we want to learn how to adjust our conscience to match God's standards. And that's really the ultimate goal, I think, is that our conscience will match God's standards. And number five, we'll benefit greatly if we feel the weight of a guilty conscience. I mean, how many people, how many of us today have a guilty conscience? And if we want to experience freedom from that and happiness and joy, and we'll talk about that a little bit in here in just a minute. But those are some benefits that we'll, we'll seek from this study. In reality, we are all very judgmental. God is a moral God, and we're made in his image. We are not capable of not making moral judgments. Let me rephrase that. We are incapable of not making moral judgments. We are moral people. And as churches, we are moral churches. If we think we've gotten beyond debates of the last generation over music and alcohol, we find that we're in this generation's debates over recycling and child discipline. These can be just as divisive in a church. So again, focusing on this consciousness will help us as we look to church unity. Conscience, these issues will remain an important part of our personal lives, our church lives, our ministry lives, and it'll be around for the rest of our lives. If you want to look at the book and break it down into three sections, um, the first two chapters talk about what conscience is, and we'll get in the first chapter here in just a minute. Chapters three and four talk about how we should deal with our own consciences. And then chapters five and six explain how we relate to others who perhaps have different consciences and different standards. So that's kind of a general overview of the book. Next, we'll look specifically at chapter 1. and Next week, Matt will do chapter 2 and then so forth. Chapter 1 is entitled, What is Conscience? I know this, we're all widespread here, but what comes to your mind? This is where you respond. What comes to mind when you think of conscience? Anything pops into your mind? Okay. The little small voice, Luke said. Anybody else? Well, I did what I usually do with my Sunday school class. When we have a, anytime I have a lesson that has one, one word title, I always try to define that word. So I looked up in a dictionary. And this is a secular dictionary. This is not by scripture, but it says, Conscience is an inner feeling 
or voice, like Luke said, an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or wrongness of our behavior. So it's that feeling, it's that voice that guides us to a rightness or a wrongness. Some synonyms of conscience our soul, that, that's the first thing that popped into my mind. When I thought of conscience, I thought of our soul. Um, ethics, an inner voice, talked about that already. Our principles, Kim and I were discussing this on our way to Little Rock yesterday, and she said the Holy Spirit was what kind of popped into her mind when she thought of the conscience. And the chapter 1 starts off talking about kind of what Luke was talking about. It says most people probably think of conscience it's that little shoulder angel. That's what they called it. Um, on one side, on your right shoulder, you have an angel dressed up in white. And on the other side, you have a demon dressed in red with a pitchfork. You all get that picture in your mind. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I've known some people that had a devil on both sides. You know what I mean? There was no angel to be found, right? But anyway, you get that picture. The angel represents a person's conscience. The demon represents temptation. The angel represents attempts to persuade us to do right. You know, do this, do this, where the demon tempts us to do what's wrong. So I think that's a good picture of what conscience is. Um, and this, I think this picture connects with us because we, we commonly, we all experience that internal conflict. And it seems like voices in our heads are trying to argue about, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. What's right, what's wrong? Brother Richard, when he was here, he always talked about that, that inner white dog and black dog. The white dog is good, the black dog is bad. And the point he always made is the dog that you feed the most is a dog that's going to win. So if you're, if you're feeding that angel or that white dog, that's what's going to win. And thankfully, we have the Bible to teach us about conscience, what it is, what it is not. But first, today, we're going to look at... Um, Nine introductory principles about conscience. And I'll try to go over them more than once so we kind of keep them in the forefront of our mind. Next week, I think Matt's going to talk about a biblical definition of conscience. But today, we're just talking about general principles of the conscience. And there are nine of them. Now, I'm, I'm OCD. I don't know why he didn't have ten. You know, there should be ten reasons, not just nine. But anyway... We'll just have nine. I couldn't, I couldn't come up with a tenth one either. But number one, and again, these are just general principles about the conscience. Number one says conscience is a human capacity. In other words, if you're a human, you have a conscience. You have the conscience, the capacity to have a conscience. Conscience is a human capacity. Um, it's possible to never actualize or achieve that capacity. You can just ignore it, but you do have a conscience. To be human is to have the capacity for conscience, whether or not you use it or not. Now, some people don't have that ability. You think of newborns. You think of a mentally disabled child, perhaps an adult with a trauma, a stroke, dementia. You know, there are people that do not really have the capacity, but those are the exceptions. Um, everyone else does have the capacity. So number one, the conscience is a human capacity. If you're human, you have that capacity. Number two, the conscience ref reflects the moral aspects of God's image. Our conscience should reflect the moral aspects of God's image. We are made in the image of God. He is a moral God. 
So that makes us moral creatures, and we make moral judgments. It's just a fact of life. Um, and conscience is shining the spotlight on our moral judgment back on ourselves, our thoughts, and our actions. That's what our conscience does. We look at what we're thinking, how we're acting, what we're doing, and it reflects judgment back on that. This conscience is inherent. It's in all of us. It's not the result of sin. We're not going to lose it when we get to heaven and are glorified. Uh, the lesson writer makes a point that Jesus, who is fully human, has a conscience. But unlike our consciences, his completely matches God's will. And we'll look at the moment how ours does not. And he has never sinned against his conscience. So, number two, conscience reflects the moral aspect of God's image that we're made in, in the likeness of. Number three, conscience feels independent. Uh, you know, it should surprise us that we even care about our conscience. What difference does it make what we think about what we, what we think about our actions and our thoughts? But it does have a, a major impact on our lives. Uh, many have uh, committed suicide because of a secret guilt that they can no longer live with. Others have gone mad because of a guilty conscience. You've all heard those stories of a, a criminal who committed some awful crime earlier in life, and they got away with it. But later in life, they couldn't stand it anymore. They just turned themselves in. I can't take it anymore. I just got to get rid of this guilt. And that's what we're talking about. Uh, when we think about it, why we think, why we care about it so much is the question. It's hard to say why we care about it so much, but we do. We care about it immensely. Maybe it's this guilt. Um, the lesson writer gives an example. He said, what if you heard about a judge accused of a crime and he decided to hear his own case? So he was not only the judge, but he was the one being tried. He would sit on the bench and read the charges he would jump down to the witness stand and defend himself. And he would jump up and pronounce himself not guilty when the verdict came in. That sounds kind of crazy, but that's exactly what we do all the time. We do something, and we look at it, and we judge it, and we somehow rationalize, and we declare ourselves not guilty. Now, why we do this is, is a great mystery, but we do it day in and day out. Uh, no one really knows why. We, we feel like that, like our conscience is some kind of independent third party that's always judging us. But it may have something to do with the relationship that Paul talks about in the book of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures that kind of tells what we're talking about here. Romans 1, 19 through 20, claims that all humans know by the witness of nature that God exists and must be absolutely powerful. So that's Romans 1, 19 and 20. And this is what it says. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Talk about people in general. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So in other words, we're without, we're without excuse. By nature itself, we should know that there is a God. And if you contrast this to Romans 2, 14 through 15, it teaches us that we have a conscience. And the last part actually links the conscience between judgment. So Romans 2, 14 through 16 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, 
they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, that's a mouthful, and I must admit I had to read that several times, but here's the point. In other words, we all have a sense that what's going on in our conscience is secret. Now, nobody else knows about it, and yet we also have a sense that there's an all-powerful, all-knowing God that's in on those secrets and someday is going to judge us. So even though our conscience, on one hand, we think we're getting away with it, but on the other hand, God is in on that secret. So that's the whole point of that section there. Now, not all people actually reason it out like that. It's not like a lost world is, is trying to rationalize things from an all-powerful, all-knowing God standpoint. But they still have that inborn conscience, whether you're a Christian or not. Um, and it's a very strong, powerful um, conscience. Perhaps that's why the voice of conscience seems so much like an independent judge rather than, rather than not. So that's number three, is that conscience feels independent. Number four, again, these are general principles on, conscience, on the conscience. Number four, conscience is a priceless gift from God. It's a gift for our good and for our joy, and it is from God. Um, the guilt of our conscience makes us feel, the guilt our conscience makes us feel should lead us to turn from sin to Jesus. That's the point of guilt, right? So we don't keep doing the same thing over and over. So this guilt, even though we hate guilt, it's good for us because it makes us turn from our sin and turn towards God. God gives us that sense of guilt for our good. And this conscience is also a gift from God for our joy. So it's for our good and it's for our joy. We want to be happy. We want to be blessed. I don't know anybody that doesn't want that. And the ultimate way to be happy and blessed is to satisfy our lives with God himself and share that joy with others. And we do that through the guidance of our conscience. So number four, conscience is a priceless gift from God for our good, for our joy. Number five, conscience is an on and off switch and not a dimmer. Conscience is either right or wrong. It's black or white. There's no gray. There's no middle ground. It's not a dimmer. It's an off and on switch. That's why it's so important to allow, align our personal conscience standards with what God considers right and his standards. Our right and wrong doesn't really matter unless it's in alignment with God's right and wrong not just human opinion. So that number five, conscience wants to be an on and off switch, not a dimmer. Number six, your conscience is personal. Your conscience is your conscience, and my conscience is my conscience. It's personal, it's your conscience, it's intended for you and not for someone else. And the conscience of other believers belongs to them and not to you. We cannot, we must not force others to adopt our conscience. You've heard of MYOB, mind your own business. Well, this is MYOC, mind your own conscience. So number six is your conscience is personal. Number seven, no two people have exactly the same conscience. So people with different consciences need to learn how to get along. And that's especially true in a church. Some people have more rules, more regulations, more legalism. Some people have less. 
And it's easy to see how these differences can cause conflicts, both in our personal lives and our church lives. Now, it's okay for some to have more rules or less rules, as long as our rules match up to God's standards, okay? And as long as our rules include the fundamental, the fundamental non-negotiable rules of God. You know, Mr. Watts, he, he beat this into us, or I shouldn't put it that way, but he impressed upon us uh, the five beliefs of Christianity. We can argue about the color of the carpet and whether we have traditional or contemporary or what kind of music or whatever, um, but Mr. Watts, five beliefs of Christianity, the deity of Christ, Jesus is God. There's non-negotiable. Number two, the infallible, inerrant word of God. Heard, it, heard a Gideon say he believed everything in the Bible. He said he even believed the cover because it says Holy Bible. He said he even believed the maps in the back. So that's the kind of attitude we have. It's infallible, inerrant. Number three, the virgin birth. Number four, the blood atonement for our sin. That Christ blood um, overcame our sin and number five the death burial resurrection and future bodily return of Jesus but there are other things that are that are negotiable um, alcohol is, is one that I think this church has struggled with over the generations um, I don't drink I never have never will I just my mom would kill me but anyway um, that's okay there are those of you in here who do drink alcohol, and that's okay, as long as you're not getting drunk, as long as you're not controlled uh, in making alcohol a god in your life. Uh, I'm not better because I don't drink. You're not better because you do drink. Uh, and and I, we can't self-righteously judge the other one either. Neither of us can become self-righteous in our conscience on that matter. First Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, right? And that's what we need to do. So that's just an example that came to my mind that we can have different consciences and still be okay. But we can't judge each other as long as our consciences are in alignment with God's perfect standard and His will. So number seven is no people have exactly the same conscience. And number eight, unfortunately, no one's conscience perfectly matches God's will. That's no one. We all tend to assume that our consciences are in alignment with God's will, but no one's consistently, perfectly matches up to God's will. And let me say that one more time. No one's conscience perfectly matches God's will. No one's. Not mine, not yours, only Jesus's. But as we come to understand God's will and his standard more and more, we'll have the opportunity to add rules to our conscience that match God's word and weed out rules that God's word treats as optional. So we're going to add things to our conscience that God wants us to add, and we're going to rule out the things that God wants us to rule out. Many of those things that we're ruling out are just simply matters of opinion, preference, or even tradition. Now, this process takes a lifetime. We're never going to achieve it um, where, our, where our conscience perfectly aligns with God's uh, standard. It'll take a lifetime, but we have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, we have the Word of God, and we have the Church of God to help us. And how can we discern between our conscience and the Holy Spirit and the perfect will of God? Well, if, if what your conscience is telling you contradicts Scripture, then it's not from the Holy Spirit. 
But when your conscience or whatever message the Lord's putting on your heart or telling you to do, whatever action he's telling you to do, if it is consistent with Scripture, then it is the Holy Spirit speaking to you through your conscience. So if you want to judge your conscience against anything, whether you're on the right track or not, judge it against Scripture. Again, we have the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the Church of God to help us. So that was number eight. No one's conscience perfectly matches God's will. Just like none of us are perfect in any way, but we can strive towards that perfection. And number nine, we can damage our conscience. We could damage the gift of conscience just like we can damage other gifts from God. We can damage it in two opposite ways. We can make it more... Let me start over. We can make it insensitive or we can make it oversensitive. We can make our conscience insensitive by developing, developing a habit of ignoring that still small voice of warning. And that voice gets weaker and weaker and weaker and eventually it stops. That's how we can get insensitive. Paul and 1 Timothy call this searing the conscience. Searing is with a hot iron. 1 Timothy 4.2 says, Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So we can make our consciences insensitive where we're not hearing that still, still small voice of God. We can also make our conscience oversensitive by packing it with too many rules that are just matters of opinion and tradition, too much legalism. So we can go either way, insensitive or oversensitive. So number nine, we can damage our conscience. So just to kind of summarize briefly those nine, number one, again, these are introductory principles about conscience. Number one, conscience is a human capacity. If you are a human, and I think most of you are, we have a conscience. Number two, conscience reflects the moral aspects of God's image. God is moral. We are made in his image, so we are moral. And number three, conscience feels independent, like an independent third party or a judge. Number four, conscience is a priceless gift from God. It's for our good, and it brings us joy so we can bring joy to others. Number five, conscience wants, us to, wants to be an on-off switch, not a dimmer. It's white or black. Right or wrong, no gray, no middle ground. Number six, your conscience is for you and you only. Mind your own conscience. And number seven, no two people have exactly the same conscience. And that's okay as long as your conscience matches God's standards. And number eight, no one's conscience perfectly matches God's will. No one's. It's a lifelong process, and we can work towards that. Number nine... Your conscience can change, I'm sorry, you, you can damage your conscience. You can be insensitive by rejecting the still small voice or oversensitive by having too many rules and regulations, which are really just matters of opinion or tradition. And to kind of wrap things up, um, the last part of this chapter one talks about two main principles of conscience. So if you don't remember anything that I've said this morning, try to focus on these two main principles of conscience. We just talked about just some introductory principles, but, but as we've moved forward in this book, I want you to look at these two main principles. Number one, we must obey our conscience. 
So we must obey our conscience. And number two, God is the only Lord of our conscience. So principle number one, we must obey our conscience. Even unbelievers feel the importance of obeying their conscience. Like we said earlier, we all have that inborn right versus wrong um, makeup within us. So even unbelievers sense this. But as Christians, when we go against our conscience, when we think it's warning us in a correct way, that's, that's sin. It's always sin. Even if the action we're doing is okay, if, if we're not listening to our conscience and we're disobeying it, then that is sin because our intention is to sin. Now, does this mean our conscience is always right? Unfortunately, no. And this brings us to the second principle. So the first principle is obey your conscience. But since our conscience is not always right, the principle number two is that God is the only Lord of our conscience. Our conscience is not the Lord of itself. We're not the Lord of our conscience. That would be idolatry. Um, Our parents are not the Lord of our conscience. Our pastor is not the Lord of our conscience. Our fellow church members is not the Lord of our conscience. God is the only Lord of our conscience. This means that the first principle, which is to obey our conscience, has one critical limitation. If God, who is the Lord of our conscience, shows us through his word that our conscience is wrong, and if we believe he's trying to get us to change, to match his will, then we must obey God. So if our conscience is telling us one thing, but you get this really strong, overwhelming, undeniable feeling from God that that your conscience is wrong, then you must obey God. We must obey God rather than men. That's Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than ourselves. We must obey God even over our conscience. Whenever obey conscience collides with obey God, we must obey God. Obey God must come out on top every time. So again, the two main principles, the main theme of today's entire lesson is to obey your conscience. And number two, that God is the Lord of your conscience. In the coming weeks, starting next week, I think there are 30 times in the New Testament that the Greek word conscience is, is mentioned. And I think we're going to look at, look at those. So it's going to be very scripture-heavy in the next few weeks. And we're going to look at a biblical meaning and definition of what conscience is.